Hello and welcome to episode 60 of Rainy Day Storytime. I'm your host, Miss Kate, and I am so happy to be here with you this Thursday, November 9th, as we continue with Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. When we left off on Tuesday, three years had passed in the lives of the March sisters. Amy has become a teenager and Aunt March's new favorite. Beth has recovered somewhat, but is still very weak and quite not quite herself. Joe is making money as a writer and is missing Lori terribly while he's away at college, getting into trouble. And Meg has become the first of the sisters to marry and has gone off to live with her husband, Mr. John Brooke. So we will pick up today at the top of chapter 26. If you have your book, go ahead and open it to follow along with me. And here we go. It takes people a long time to learn the difference between talent and genius, especially ambitious young men and women. Amy was learning this distinction through much tribulation, for mistaking enthusiasm for inspiration, she attempted every branch of art with youthful audacity. For a long time, there was a law in the mud pie business, and she devoted herself to the finest pen and ink drawing in which she showed such taste and skill that her graceful handiwork proved both pleasant and profitable. But overstrained eyes soon caused pen and ink to be laid aside for a bold attempt at poker sketching. While this attack lasted, the family lived in constant fear of conflagration, for odor of burning wood pervaded the house at all hours. Smoke issued from the attic and shed with alarming frequency. Red-hot pokers lay about promiscuously, and Hannah never went to bed without a pail of water and the dinner bell at her door in case of fire. Raphael's face was found boldly executed on the underside of the moldering board, and Boscus on the head of a beer barrel. A chanting cherub adorned the cover of the sugar bucket, and attempts to portray Garrick buying gloves of the grisette supplied kindling for some time. From fire to oil was a natural transition for burnt fingers, and Amy fell to painting with the undiminished ardor. An artist's friend fitted her out with his cast-off palettes, brushes, and colors, and she daubed away, producing pastoral and marine views such as were never seen on land or sea. Her monstrosities in the way of cattle would have taken prizes at an agricultural fair, and the perilous pitching of her vessels would have produced seasickness in most nautical observers, if the utter disregard to all known rules of shipbuilding and rigging had not convulsed him with laughter at the first glance. Swarthy boys and dark-eyed Madonnas staring at you from one corner of the studio did not suggest Marillo. Oily brown shadows of faces with lucrid streaks in the wrong place meant Rembrandt. Buxom ladies and dropsical infants, Rubens, and Turner appeared in tempest of blue thunder, orange lightning, brown rain, and purple clouds with a tomato-colored splash in the middle, which might be sun or a buoy, a sailor's shirt, or a king's robe, as the specter pleased. Charcoal portraits came next, and the entire family hung in a row, looking as wild and crocky as if just evoked from the coal bin. Softened into crayon sketches, they did better, for the likenesses were good, and Amy's hair, Joe's nose, Meg's mouth, and Lori's eyes were pronounced wonderfully fine. A return to clay and plaster followed, and ghostly cast of her acquaintances haunted corners of the house or tumbled off closet shelves onto people's heads. Children were enticed in as models till their incoherent accounts of her mysterious doings caused Miss Amy to be regarded in the light of a young ogress. Her efforts in this line, however, were brought to an abrupt close by an untoward accident which quenched her ardor. 
Other models failing her for a time, she undertook to cast her own pretty foot, and the family were one day alarmed by an unearthly bumping and screaming, and running to the rescue, found the young enthusiast hopping wildly about the shed with her foot held fast in a pan full of plaster, which had hardened with unexpected rapidity. With much difficulty and some danger, she was dug out, for Joe was so overcome with laughter while she excavated that her knife went too far and cut the poor foot and left a lasting memorial of one artistic attempt at least. After this, Amy subsided till a mania for sketching from nature set her to haunting the river, field, and wood for picturesque studies and sighing for ruins to copy. She caught endless cold sitting on damp grass to book a delicious bit, composed of stone, a stump, one mushroom, and a broken mulligan stalk, or a heavenly mass of clouds that looked like a choice display of feather beds when done. She sacrificed her complexion, floating on the river in midsummer sun to study light and shade, and got a wrinkle of her nose trying after points of sight or whatever the squint and string performance is called. If genius is eternal patience, as Michelangelo affirms, Amy certainly had some claim to the divine attribute, for she persevered in spite of all obstacles, failures, and discouragements, firmly believing that in time she should do something worthy to be called high art. She was learning, doing, and enjoying other things, meanwhile, for she had resolved to be an attractive and accomplished woman, even if she never became a great artist. Here she succeeded better, for she was one of those happily created beings who pleased without effort, making friends everywhere, and taking life so gracefully and easily that less fortunate souls are tempted to believe that such are born under a lucky star. Everybody liked her, for among her good gifts was tact. She had an instinctive sense of what was pleasing and proper, always said the right thing to the right person, did just what suited the time and place, and was so self-possessed that her sisters used to say, if Amy went to court without any rehearsal beforehand, she'd know exactly what to do. One of her weaknesses was the desire to move in our best society without being quite sure what the best really was. Money, position, fashionable accomplishments, and elegant manners were most desirable things in her eyes, and she liked to associate with those who possessed them, often mistaking the false for the true and admiring for what was not admirable. Never forgetting that by birth she was a gentle woman, she cultivated her aristocratic tastes and feelings so that when the opportunity came, she might be ready to take the place from which poverty now excluded her. My lady, as her friends called her, sincerely desired to be a genuine lady, and was so at heart, but she had yet to learn that money cannot buy refinement of nature, that rank does not always confer nobility, and that true breeding makes itself felt in spite of external drawbacks. I want to ask a favor of you, Mama, Amy said, coming in with an important air one day. Well, little girl, what is it, replied her mother, in whose eyes the stately young lady still remained the baby. Our drawing class breaks up next week, and before the girls separate for the summer, I want to ask them out here for a day. They're wild to see the river and sketch the broken bridge and copy some of the other things they admired in my book. They've been very kind to me in many ways, and I am grateful, for they are all rich, and no, I am poor, yet they never made any difference. Why should they? And Miss March put the question with what the girls called her Maria Teresa air. You know as well as I that it does make a difference with nearly everyone, so don't ruffle up like a dear motherly hen when your chickens get pecked by smarter birds. The ugly duckling turned out a swan, you know, and Amy smiled without bitterness, for she possessed a happy temper and hopeful spirit. Mrs. March laughed and smoothed down her maternal pride as she asked, Well, my swan, what is your plan? I should like to ask the girls out to lunch next week to take them a drive to the places they want to see, a row on the river perhaps, and make a little artistic fete for them. 
That looks feasible. What do you want for lunch? Cake, sandwiches, fruit, and coffee? Will that all be necessary, I suppose? Oh, dear, no. We must have cold tongue and chicken, French chocolate, and ice cream besides. The girls are used to such things, and I want my lunch to be proper and elegant, though I do work for my living. How many young ladies are there, asked her mother, beginning to look sober. Twelve or fourteen in class, but I dare say they won't all come. Bless me, child, you will have to charter an omnibus to carry them about. Why, mother, how can you think of such a thing? Not more than six or eight will probably come, so I shall hire a beach wagon and borrow Mr. Lawrence's cherry bounce. All this will be expensive, Amy. Not very. I've calculated the cost, and I'll pay for it myself. Don't you think, dear, that these girls are used to such things, and the best we can do will be nothing new, that some simpler plan would be pleasanter to them as a change, if nothing more, and much better for us than buying or borrowing what we don't need and attempting a style that is not in keeping with our circumstances? If I can't have it as I like it, I don't care to have it at all. I know that I can carry it out perfectly well if you and the girls will help a little, and I don't see why I can't if I'm willing to pay for it, said Amy, with the decision which opposition was apt to change into obstinacy. Miss March knew that experience was an excellent teacher, and when it was possible, she let her children learn alone the lessons which she would gladly have made easier if they had not objected to taking advice as much as they did Salts and Senna. Very well, Amy, if your heart is set upon it and you see your way through without too great an outlay of money, time, and temper, I'll say no more. Talk it over with the girls, and whichever way you decide, I'll do my best to help you. Thanks, mother. You are always so kind, and away went Amy to lay her plan before her sisters. Meg agreed at once and promised her aid gladly, offering anything she possessed from her little house itself to her very best salt spoons. Joe frowned upon the whole project and would have nothing to do with it at first. Why in the world should you spend your money, worry your family, and turn the house upside down for a parcel of girls who don't care a sixpence for you? I thought you had too much pride and sense to truckle to any moral woman just because she wears French boots and rides in a coupe, said Joe. Being called from the tragical climax of her novel was not in the best mood for social enterprises. I don't truckle, and I hate being patronized as much as you do, returned Amy indignantly, for the two still jangled when such questions arose. The girls do care for me, and I for them, and there's a great deal of kindness and sense and talent among them in spite of what you call fashionable nonsense. You don't care to make people like you to go to good society and cultivate your manners and tastes as I do, and I mean to make the most of every chance that comes. You can go through the world with your elbows out and your nose in the air and call it independence if you like. That's not my way. When Amy wetted her tongue and freed her mind, she usually got the best of it, for she seldom failed to have common sense on her side, while Joe carried her love of liberty and hate of conventionalities to such an unlimited extent that she naturally found herself worsted in an argument. Amy's definition of Joe's idea of independence was such a good hit that both burst out laughing, and the discussion took a more admirable turn. Much against her will, Joe at length consented to sacrifice a day to Miss Grundy and help her sister through what she regarded as a nonsensical business. The invitations were sent, most all accepted, and the following Monday was set apart for the grand event. Hannah was out of humor because her week's work was deranged and prophesied that if the washing and ironing weren't done regular, nothing go, would go well anywheres. This hitch in the mainspring of domestic machinery had a bad effect upon the whole concerned, but Amy's motto was nil desperandum, and having made up her mind what to do, she proceeded to do it in spite of all obstacles. To begin with, Hannah's cooking didn't turn out well. The chicken was tough, the tongue too salty, and the chocolate wouldn't froth properly. Then the cake and the ice cream cost more than Amy expected. So did the wagon and various other expenses, which seemed trifling at the outset, counted up rather alarmingly afterwards. 
Beth got cold and took to her bed. Meg had an unusual number of callers to keep her at home, and Joe was in such a divided state of mind that her breakages, accidents, and mistakes were uncommonly numerous, serious, and trying. If I hadn't been for mother, I never should have got through, as Amy declared afterwards, and gratefully remembered when the best joke of the season was entirely forgotten by everybody else. If it was not fair on Monday, the young ladies were to come on Tuesday, an arrangement which aggravated Joe and Hannah to the last degree. On Monday morning, the weather was indeed in an undecided state, which was more exasperating than a steady pour. It drizzled a little, shone a little, blew a little, and didn't make up its mind till it was too late for anyone else to make up theirs. Amy was up at dawn, hustling people out of their beds and through their breakfast, that the house may be got in order. The parlor struck her as looking uncommonly shabby, but without stopping to sigh for what she had not, she skillfully made the best of what she had, arranging chairs over the worn places in the carpet, covering stains on the walls with picture frames in ivy, filling up empty corners with homemade statuary, which gave an artistic air to the room, as did the lovely vases of flowers that Joe scattered about. The lunch looked charmingly, and as she surveyed it, she sincerely hoped it would taste good and that the borrowed glass china and silver would get safely home again. The carriages were promised. Meg and Mother were all ready to do the honors. Beth was able to help Hannah behind the scenes. Joe had engaged to be as lively and amicable as an absent mind and an aching head, and the very decided disapproval of everybody and everything would allow. And as she was wearily dressed, Amy cheered herself with anticipations of the happy moment when lunch safely over, she should drive away with her friends for an afternoon of our artistic delights for the cherry bounce and the broken bridge were her strong points then came two hours of suspense during which she vibrated from parlor to porch while public opinion varied like the weathercock a smart shower at eleven had evidently quenched the enthusiasm of the young ladies who were to arrive at twelve for nobody came and at two the exhausted family sat down in a blaze of sunshine to consume the perishable portions of the feast that nothing might be lost no doubt about the weather today they certainly will come so we must fly around and be ready for them said amy as the sun woke her the next morning she spoke briskly but in her secret soul she wished she had said nothing about tuesday for her interest like her cake was getting a little stale i can't get any lobsters so you'll have to do without salad today said mr march coming in half an hour later with the expression of a placid despair use the chicken then the toughness won't matter in a salad advised his wife Hannah left it on the kitchen table a minute, and then the kittens got into it. I'm very sorry, Amy, added Beth, who was still a patroness of cats. Then I must have lobster, for tongue alone won't do, said Amy decidedly. Shall I rush into town and demand one, asked Joe, with the magnanimity of a martyr. You'd come bringing it home under your arm without any paper just to try me. I'll go myself, answered Amy, whose temper was beginning to fail. Shrouded in a thick veil and armed with a genteel traveling basket, she departed, feeling that a cool drive would soothe her ruffled spirit and fit her for the labors of the day. After some delay, the object of her desire was procured, likewise a bottle of dressing to prevent further loss of time at home, and off she drove again, well pleased with her own forethought. As the omnibus contained only one other passenger, a sleepy old lady, Amy pocketed her veil and beguiled the tedium of the way by trying to find out where all her money had gone. So busy was she with her card full of refractory figures that she did not observe a newcomer who entered without stopping the vehicle till a masculine voice said, Good morning, Miss March, and looking up she beheld one of Laurie's most elegant college friends. Feverently hoping that he would get out before she did, Amy utterly ignored the basket at her feet and congratulating herself that she had on her new traveling dress returned the young man's greeting with her usual suavity and spirit. 
They got on excellently, for Amy's chief care was soon set at rest by learning that the gentleman would leave first. She was chatting away in a peculiarly lofty strain when the old lady got out. In stumbling to the door, she upset the basket, and oh horror, the lobster in all its vulgar size and brilliancy was revealed to the high-born eyes of a tutor. By Jove, she's forgotten her dinner, cried the unconscious youth, poking the scarlet monster in its place with his cane and preparing to hand out the basket after the old lady. Please don't. It's mine, murmured Amy, with a face nearly as red as her fish. Oh, really, I beg pardon. It's an uncommonly fine one, isn't it? said Tudor, with great presence of mind and an air of sober interest that did credit to his breeding. Amy recovered herself in a breath, set her basket boldly on the seat, and said, laughing, Don't you wish you were to have some of the salad he's to make, and to see the charming young ladies who are to eat it? Now that was tact, for two of the ruling foibles of the masculine mind were touched. The lobster was instantly surrounded by a halo of pleasing reminiscences, and curiosity about the charming young ladies diverted his mind from the comical mishap. I suppose he'll laugh and joke over it with Laurie, but... I shan't see them, that's a comfort, thought Amy, as Tudor bowed and departed. She did not mention this meeting at home, though she discovered that, thanks to the upset, her new dress was much damaged by the rivulets of dressing that meandered down the skirt, but went through with the preparation which now seemed more irksome than before, and at twelve o'clock all was ready again. Feeling that the neighbors were interested in her movements, she wished to efface the memory of yesterday's failure by a grand success today, so she ordered the cherry bounce and drove away in a state to meet and escort her guests to the banquet. There's the rumble. They're coming. I'll go to the porch to meet them. It looks hospitable, and I want the poor child to have a good time after all her trouble, said Mrs. March, suiting the action to word. But after one glance, she retired with an indescribable expression, for looking quite lost in the big carriage sat Amy and one young lady. Run, Beth, and help Hannah clear half the things off the table. It will be too absurd to put a luncheon for twelve before a single girl, cried Joe, hurrying away to the lower regions, too excited to stop even for a laugh. In came Amy, quite calm and delightfully cordial to the one guest who had kept her promise. The rest of the family, being a dramatic turn, played their parts equally well, and Miss Elliot found them a most hilarious set, for it was impossible to entirely control the merriment which possessed them. The remodeled lunch began gaily, partaken of the studio and garden visited, the art discussed with enthusiasm, Amy ordered a buggy, alas for the elegant cherry bounce, and drove her friend quietly about the neighborhood till sunset when the party went out. As she came walking in, looking very tired but composed as ever, she observed that every vestige of the unfortunate fete had disappeared, except a suspicious pucker about the corners of Joe's mouth. You had a lovely afternoon for your drive, dear, said her mother, as respectfully as if the whole twelve had come. Miss Elliot is a very sweet girl and seemed to enjoy herself, I thought, observed Beth with unusual warmth. Could you spare me some of your cake? I really need some. I have so much company and I can't make such delicious stuff as yours, asked Meg soberly. Take it all. I'm the only one here who likes sweet things and it will mold before I can dispose of it, answered Amy, thinking with a sigh of the generous store she had laid for such an end is this. It's a pity Laurie isn't here to help us, began Joe, as they sat down to ice cream and salad for the fourth time in two days. A warning look from her mother checked any further remarks, and the whole family ate in heroic silence, till Mr. March mildly observed, salad was one of the favorite dishes of the ancients, and Evelyn. Here a general explosion of laughter cut short the history of salads, to the great surprise of the learned gentleman. Bundle everything into a basket and send it to the Humnels, Germans-like messes. I'm sick of the sight of this, and there's no reason you should all die of surfet because I've been a fool, cried Amy, wiping her eyes. 
I thought I should have died when I saw you two girls rattling about in the what you call it, like the two little kernels in a very big nutshell, and mother waiting in the state to receive the throng, sighed Joe, quite spent with laughter. I'm very sorry you were disappointed, dear, but we all did our best to satisfy you, said Mrs. March, in a tone of full of motherly regret. I am satisfied. I've done what I undertook, and it's not my fault that it failed. I comfort myself with that, said Amy, with a little quiver in her voice. I thank you all very much for helping me, and I'll thank you still more if you won't allude to it for a month, at least. No one did for several months, but the word fet always produced a general smile, and Lori's birthday gift to Amy was a tiny coral lobster in the shape of a charm for her watch guard. Chapter 27 Fortune suddenly smiled upon Joe and dropped a good luck penny in her path. Not a golden penny exactly, but I doubt if half a million would have given more real happiness than did this little sum that came to her in this wise. Every few weeks she would shut herself up in her room, put on her scribbling suit, and fall into a vortex, as she expressed it, writing away at her novel with all her heart and soul, for till that was finished she could find no peace. Her scribbling suit consisted of a black pinafore on which she could wipe her pen at will and a cap of the same material adorned with a cheerful red bow into which she bundled her hair when the decks were cleared for action. This cap was a beacon to the inquiring eyes of her family who during these little periods kept their distance merely popping in their heads semi-occasionally to ask with interest, does genius burn Joe? They did not always venture even to ask this question, but took an observation of the cap and judged accordingly. If this expressive article of dress was drawn low upon her forehead, it was a sign that hard work was going on. In exciting moments, it was pushed rakishly askew, and when despair seized the author, it was plucked wholly off and cast upon the floor. At such times, the intruder silently withdrew, and not until the red bow was seen gaily erect upon the gifted brow did anyone dare address Joe. She did not think herself a genius by any means, but when the writing fit came on, she gave herself up to it with entire abandon and led a blissful life unconscious of want, care, or bad weather while she sat safe and happy in an imaginary world full of friends almost as real and dear to her as any of the flesh. Sleep forsook her eyes, meals stood untasted, day and night were all too short for to enjoy the happiness which blessed her only at such times and made these hours worth living, even if they bore no other fruit. The divine afflatus usually lasted a week or two, and then she emerged from her vortex, hungry, sleepy, cross, or despondent. She was just recovering from one of these attacks when she was prevailed upon to escort Miss Crocker to a lecture, and in return for her virtue was rewarded with a new idea. It was a people's course, the lecture on pyramids, and Joe rather wondered at the choice of such a subject for such an audience, but took it for granted that some great social evil would be remedied or some great want supplied by enfolding the glories of the pharaohs to an audience whose thoughts were busy with the price of coal and flour and whose lives were spent in trying to solve harder riddles than that of the Sphinx. They were early, and while Miss Crocker set the heel of her stocking, Joe amused herself by examining the faces of the people who occupied the seat with them. On her left were two matrons with massive foreheads and bonnets to match, discussing women's rights and making tatting. Beyond sat a pair of humble lovers, artlessly holding each other by the hand, a somber spinster eating peppermints out of a paper bag, and an old gentleman taking his preparatory nap behind a yellow bandana. On her right, her only neighbor was a studious-looking lad absorbed in a newspaper. 
It was a pictorial sheet, and Joe examined the work of art nearest her, idly wondering what unfortuitous concatenation of circumstances needed the melodramatic illustration of an Indian in full war costume tumbling over a precipice with a wolf at his throat while two infuriated young gentlemen with unnaturally small feet and big eyes were stabbing each other close by, and a disheveled female was flying away in the background with her mouth wide open. Pausing to turn the page, the lad saw her looking. With boyish good nature, offered her half his paper, saying bluntly, Want to read it? That's a first-rate story. Joe accepted it with a smile, for she had never outgrown her liking for lads, and soon found herself involved in an unusual labyrinth of love, mystery, and murder, for the story belonged to that class of light literature in which the passions have a holiday, and when the author's invention fails, a grand catastrophe clears the stage of one half of the dramatist's personae, leaving the other half to exult over their downfall. Prime, isn't it? asked the boy, as her eye went down the last paragraph of her portion. I think you and I could do as well as that if we tried, returned Joe, amused at his admiration of the trash. I should think I was pretty lucky chap if I could. She makes a good living out of such stories, they say, and he pointed to the name of Mrs. S-L-A-N-G, Northbury, under the title of the tale. Do you know her? asked Joe with sudden interest. No, but I read all her pieces, and I know a fellow who works in the office where the paper's printed. Do you say she makes a good living out of stories like this? And Joe looked more respectfully at the agitated group and thickly sprinkled exclamation points that adorned the page. Yes, she does. She knows just what folks like and gets paid well for writing it. Here the lecture began, but Joe heard very little of it, for while Professor Sands was prosing away about the Belzoni, Cheops, Scarabi, and Hieroglyphics, she was covertly taking down the address of the paper and boldly resolving to try for a $100 prize offered in its columns for a sensational story. By the time the lecture ended and the audience awoke, she had built up a splendid fortune for herself, not the first founded upon paper, and was already deep in the concoction of her story, being unable to decide whether the duel should come before the elopement or after the murder. She said nothing of her plan at home, but fell to work the next day, much to the disquiet of her mother, who always looked a little anxious when genius took to burning. Joe had never tried this style before, contenting herself with very mild romances for the spread eagle. Her theatrical experience and miscellaneous reading were of service now, for they gave her some idea of dramatic effect and supplied plot, language, and costumes. Her story was as full of desperation and despair as her limited acquaintance with those uncomfortable emotions enabled her to make it, and having located it in Lisbon, she wound up with an earthquake as a striking and appropriate denouement. The manuscript was privately dispatched, accompanied by a note modestly saying that if the tale didn't get the prize which the writer hardly dared to expect, she would be very glad to receive any sum it might be considered worth. Six weeks is a long time to wait, and still longer time for a girl to keep a secret, but Joe did both, and was just beginning to give up all hope of ever seeing her manuscript again when a letter arrived which almost took her breath away, for on opening it, a check for a hundred dollars fell into her lap. For a minute she stared at it as if it was a snake, and then she read the letter and began to cry. If the amicable gentleman who wrote that kindly note could have known what intense happiness he was giving a fellow creature, I think he would have devoted his leisure hours, if he has any, to that amusement. For Joe valued the letter more than the money, because it was encouraging, and after years of effort it was so pleasant to find that she had learned to do something, though it was only to write a sensation story. 
A prouder young woman was seldom seen than she when, having composed herself, she electrified the family by appearing before them with the letter in one hand and the check in the other, announcing that she had won the prize. Of course, there was a great jubilee, and when the story came, everyone read and praised it, though after her father had told her the language was good, the romance fresh and hearty, and the tragedy quite thrilling, he shook his head and said in his unworldly way, you can do better than this, Joe. Aim at the highest and never mind the money. I think the money's the best part. What will you do with such a fortune? asked Amy, regarding the magic slip of paper with a reverential eye. Send Beth and Mother to the seaside for a month or two, answered Joe promptly. Oh, how splendid. No, I can't do it, dear. It would be so selfish, cried Beth, who had clapped her thin hands and taken a long breath as if pining for fresh ocean breezes, and then stopped herself and motioned away the check which her sister waved before her. Ah, but you shall go. I've set my heart on it, and that's what I tried for, and that's why I succeeded. I never get on when I think of myself alone, so it will help me to work for you, don't you see? Besides, Marmy needs a change, and she won't leave you, so you must go. Won't it be fun to see you come home plump and rosy again? Hurrah for Dr. Joe, who always cures her patients. To the seaside they went, after much discussion, and though Beth didn't come home as plump and rosy as could be desired, she was much better, while Mrs. March declared she felt ten years younger. So Joe was satisfied with the investment of her prize money, and fell to work with a cheery spirit bent on earning more of those delightful checks. She did earn several that year, and began to feel herself a power in the house, for by the magic of a pen her rubbish turned into comforts for them all. The duke's daughter paid the butcher's bill, the phantom's hand put down a new carpet, and the curse of the Coventries proved the blessing of the marches in a way of groceries and gowns. Wealth is certainly a most desirable thing, but poverty has its sunny side, and one of the sweet uses of adversity is the genius satisfaction which comes from hardy work of head and hand, or to the inspiration of necessity we owe half the wise and beautiful and useful blessings of the world. Joe enjoyed a taste of this satisfaction and ceased to envy richer girls, taking great comfort in the knowledge that she could supply her own wants and need ask no one for a penny. Little notice was taken of her stories, but they found a market, and encouraged by this fact, she resolved to make a bold stroke for fame and fortune. Having copied her novel for the fourth time, read it to all her confidential friends, and submitted it with fear and a trembling to three publishers. She at last disposed of it on condition that she would cut it down one-third and omit all parts which she particularly admired. Now I must either bundle it back to my tin kitchen to mold, pay for printing it myself, or chop it up to suit purchasers and get what I can for it. Fame is a very good thing to have in the house, but cash is more convenient, so I wish to take the sense of a meeting on this important subject, said Joe, calling a family council. Don't spoil your book, my girl, for there is more in it than you know, and the idea is well worked out. Let it wait and ripen, was her father's advice, and he practiced as he preached, having waited patiently thirty years for fruit of his own to ripen, and being in no haste to gather it, even now, when it was sweet and mellow. It seems to me that Joe will profit more by making the trial than by waiting, said Mrs. March. Criticism is the best test of such work, for it will show her both unsuspected merits and faults, and help her to do better next time. We are too partial, but the praise and blame of outsiders will prove useful even if she gets but little money. Yes, said Joe, knitting her brows, that's just it. I've been fussing over the thing for so long, I really don't know whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. It will be a great help to have a cool, impartial person take a look at it and tell me what they think of it. 
I wouldn't leave out a word of it. You'll spoil it if you do, for the interest of the story is more the minds than the actions of the people, and it will be all a muddle if you don't explain as you go on, said Meg, who firmly believed that this book was the most remarkable novel ever written. But Mr. Allen says, leave out the explanations and make it brief and dramatic and let the characters tell the story, interrupted Joe, turning to the publisher's note. Do as he tells you. He knows what will sell and we don't. Make a good popular book and get as much money as you can. By and by, when you've got a name, you can afford to digress and have philosophical and metaphysical people in your novels, said Amy, who took a strictly practical view of the subject. <laughs> well, said Joe, laughing, if my people are philosophical and metaphysical, it isn't my fault, for I know nothing about such things except what I hear father say sometimes. If I've got some of his wise ideas jumbled up with my romance, so much the better for me. Now, Beth, what do you say? I should so like to see it printed soon, was all Beth said, and smiled in saying it, but there was an unconscious emphasis on the last word and a wistful look in her eyes that never lost their childlike candor, which chilled Joe's heart for a minute with a foreboding fear and decided her to make her little venture soon. So, with Spartan firmness, the young authoress laid her firstborn on the table and chopped it up as ruthlessly as any ogre. In hope of pleasing everyone, she took everyone's advice, and like the old man and his donkey in the fable, suited nobody. Her father liked the metaphysical streak, which had unconsciously got into it, so that was allowed to remain, though she had her doubts about it. Her mother thought there was a trifle too much description. Out there for it nearly all came, and with it many necessary links in the story. Meg admired the tragedy, so Joe piled up the agony to suit her, while Amy objected to the fun, and with the best intentions in life, Joe quenched the sprightly scenes which relieved the somber character of the story. Then, to complete the ruin, she cut it down one-third and confidingly sent the poor little romance, like a picked robin, out into the big, busy world to try its fate. Well, it was printed, and she got three hundred dollars for it. Likewise, plenty of praise and blame, both so much greater than she expected, that she was thrown into a state of bewilderment from which it took some time to recover. You said, Mother, that criticism would help me, but how can it, when it's so contradictory, that I don't know whether I've written a promising book or broken all ten commandments, cried poor Joe, turning over a heap of notices, the perusal of which filled her with pride and joy one minute, and wrath and dire dismay the next. This man says an exquisite book, full of truth, beauty, and earnestness. All is sweet and pure and healthy, continued the perplexed authoress. The next, the theory of this book is bad, full of morbid fancies, spiritualistic ideas, and unnatural characters. Now, as I've had no theory of any kind, I don't believe in spiritualism, and I copied my characters from life. I don't see how this critic can be right. Another says it's one of the best American novels which has appeared in years. I know better than that. And the next asserts, though it is an original and written with great force and feeling, it is a dangerous book. Tisn't. Some make fun of it, some overpraise, and nearly all insist that I had a deep theory to expound when I only wrote it for pleasure and money. I wish I'd printed the whole or not at all, for I do hate to be so horridly misjudged. Her family and friends administered comfort and commendation liberally, yet it was a hard time for the sensitive, high-spirited Joe who meant so well and had apparently done so ill. But it did her good, for those whose opinion had real value gave her the criticism which is an author's best education, and when the first soreness was over, she could laugh at her poor little book, yet believe in it still, and feel herself the wiser and stronger for the buffeting she had received. Not being a genius like Keats, it won't kill me, she said stoutly, and I've got the joke on my side after all, for the parts that were taken straight out of real life are denounced as impossible and absurd, and the scenes I made up out of my own silly head are pronounced charmingly natural and tender and true. 
so I'll comfort myself with that, and when I'm ready, I'll up again and take another. That, of course, brings us to the end of our time today. I hope you'll join me next Tuesday, November 14th, as we continue with Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. I wish you all a wonderful weekend. This is Miss Kate signing off, and may all your rainy days include a rainbow. Thank you.